Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. We are in Boston today with two food justice champions, Naftali Duran, uh, who I think drove over here from Holyoke today from the western part of the state. Uh, Naftali, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Glad to have you. Uh, and Doug Rao, the founder of Daily Table and formerly uh, at Trader Joe's for almost 30 years, but the last um, last 14, I think, as president. So Doug, I want to uh, start with you. We were, we were just uh, talking earlier about you were at Trader Joe's from really the very beginning. Uh, and when we first met, you were doing a mid-career program at the Kennedy School here at Harvard, and this idea that became the Daily Table was uh, kind of germinating with you. Um, tell us a little bit about that journey from uh, Trader Joe's, uh, what it was like in the early days there, and how it led to what you're doing now. Um, and then I'm going to ask Naftali to also talk a little bit about his journey, both to the United States and what he's been doing since great. he got here. Great. Well, first of all, it's great to be here. My journey with Trader Joe's started in 1977. At that time, Trader Joe's was 10 years old. It had opened their first store in 1967 in Pasadena. And I had uh, actually gotten into the food industry through a company called Erwan, which was actually a Boston-based natural food distributor that had a Los Angeles office and mill and stuff. But I'd gone to Trader Joe's in 1977. When I went there, it was a very different store than it is today. If you walked in the front door, it would have had, you know, Hostess cupcakes and ding-dongs and Wonder Bread and Pepsi and Coke and cigarettes. It was basically like a 7-Eleven. But it also had a great private label wine section. So my job was being hired to, hey, can you figure out how to get us into food, private label, kind of the way we are in wine? And so I spent the next couple of years working with uh, Joe Colomb, Trader Joe, uh, a brilliant man, still alive uh, in Pasadena. And uh, it was a real joy to work with him in crafting and creating this private label program that Trader Joe's has now become famous for. So then uh, my career moved on with Trader Joe's. And in 1994, the CEO at the time, Joe Coloma, uh, left in 1989. So John Shields, who was the CEO, said, hey, listen, you're the new smarty pants uh, MBA. I got my MBA at the Director School of Management. Why don't you do the business plan on how Trader Joe's is going to grow? So I did this plan, said we're going to leapfrog 3,000 miles. We're going to go back to Boston. We're going to start there and then spread throughout the East. So I came back here, did that. Uh, I graduated from Trader Joe's in 2008, so just about 10 years ago. And at the time when I did that, I knew that I wasn't really going to retire, which is why I called it graduating. But I didn't know what I was going to be doing. So in the meantime, I had this opportunity to go to Harvard, as you mentioned. It was actually a program out of the president's office, uh, Drew Faust. It was called the Advanced Leadership Initiative. And it was in its second year, and it was about taking people at the end of a career that still had some gas in the tank that wanted to go and tackle some social challenge. So I didn't know what exactly I was going to do, but I, but it always bothered me that we have the richest nation in the history of the world in food production that has, at that time, one in six of the population were, quote, hungry or food insecure. And I didn't really understand what that meant exactly, but I knew that something was amiss. If we, one in six of your population is, quote, hungry, and you've got all this food, so my job was to you know, kind of dive deep into this, try and figure out what could be done about it. And out of that, Daily Table hatched. Uh, and so uh, that was a response to how do we bring affordable nutrition down into inner cities, make it available to everybody? Because it turned out from where I, my learnings and my wanderings in this was to understand that hunger in America is not so much a shortage of calories for these one in six or seven that are food insecure, it's a shortage of nutrients and that they're getting plenty of sugary 
empty, you know, uh, less nutritious calories. But what they can't afford is the fruits, the vegetables, the clean dairy and protein they should be eating. And so, and the daily table, which we'll come back and talk about in a little bit more detail, is a really a kind of a world class grocery store that is a response to that. Um, and um, I'm going to ask you, having visited it, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that. Um, Naftali Duran, um, chef, uh, teacher, food justice advocate. Um, all started for you in Oaxaca. That's where you're from. You came to the United. Is that correct? You came yes, to the yes. U.S. when you were how old? Eighteen years old. Eighteen. And, uh, was food part of your family and your culture, or where did it all Have begin? you both been to Oaxaca? I have not been to Oaxaca. Uh, I like to tell people the Oaxaca. Uh, some people call the beating heart of America, of the continent, for two reasons. One is the food. Agriculture originates in in that region in Mesoamerica. And you're, we're talking about uh, corn, beans, chili, and squash. So that's the foundation of, uh, of agriculture in the Americas. And obviously, uh, it influences greatly the world food system. Um, so food is one. And the second is the, uh, the history of, of resistance and resiliency of the people of Oaxaca. From the moment Europeans uh, touch our lands, people have been fighting back and pushing back. I grew up in Oaxaca, very uh, politically active state. Everyone that grows in Oaxaca, not everyone, but most people that grow up in Oaxaca have a conscious and are aware of the issues that are going on. I migrated uh, to the U.S. in 1997, December 2nd, 97 to be exact. And uh, as a result of really something that I didn't understand then, but I understand now, as a result of uh, NAFTA trade agreement which came into place in 94 and decimated the small farmers, the small economy. Uh, so I, I'm just one of the many, many millions of stories. The people like me, they might had to migrate because there was no other option after a... The jobs were gone. If you cannot make a living growing corn or in this case also a harvest, growing and harvesting coffee because it was consolidated in the New York State Stock Exchange, I believe, in 95, 96. So there's not many options there. So, uh, Naftali, say a little bit more about uh, your own family's relationship to food. Were your, were your mom and, was your mom and dad uh, good cooks? Uh, was food part of your family culture uh, as well? I'm assuming it was, just given your connection to it. Both. Uh, my mom is a great cook. My mom was a, an indigenous uh, migrant cook, and she cooked in Oaxaca, but she also cooked in Mexico City for wealthy people. So she would go on stints to, and cook in Mexico City and come back. My dad is a great eater. <laughs> uh, if, there, if there is one thing that I learned from him is how to eat. I spent a couple of years with him as a, as a really young kid, probably 10, 11 years old, uh, traveling up and down the coast from uh, just south of Acapulco all the way to Chiapas. And he knew every single spot to eat and every single cook. And that was really one of the major uh, points in my life for, and my, where my love of, love of food came from. But one of the greatest influences, probably uh, one of the earliest influences in, influence in my life when it comes to food was my grandma. My grandma Rosenda, my first memories of food is, is sitting by the comal and she giving me a fresh tortilla. You know, that was like, that's like one of my favorite memories and one of my earliest memories of food. And when you first came to the U.S., what was what kind of work did you get involved in? Coming, right, jumping the border right off the bat. I the, One of the first jobs that you could find 
a lot of people like me, a lot of kids like me I could find was in the kitchens. So I started washing dishes right away. And eventually, after a few months, going to high school. Okay. Well, you know, I love that you're on the, the show with, with Doug Rao because um, I, I'd read somewhere, Naftali, you saying that one of the things that motivated you is this issue of why uh, some have access to beautiful and healthy food and others don't. And that, of course, is what Doug Rao has really made his mission. That's what the Daily Table is all about. So you, let's use this as an opportunity, Doug, to talk a little bit more about how the Daily Table works. It's now, uh, you've got a grocery store, one in Dorchester that I visited that's now almost three years old, will be three years in June, another store that you've recently opened up. What it, what was the what was the, the goal behind it and uh, how has it worked out? Yeah, thank you. Well, it, um, uh, it's funny how things happen because you start in one direction and you end up in another. So for me, and as a matter of fact, uh, Billy, when you and I first met, we sat down and had breakfast together in uh, February of 2010. So it was eight, over eight years ago. Uh, my idea at the time, not understanding the problem, was to go out and collect all the bread from grocers that was at or past its sell-by date. Because bread, we all know, is perfectly good. You know, it lasts a long time past that. I mean, forget whatever the date is. You know, if it's, you know, if it, unless it's moldy, it's good. So I thought, I'd go collect that, take it down to the food banks, and they'd distribute it, and hunger would be solved in America. I mean, incredibly naive, and uh, in, in hindsight, you know, sort of a silly uh, approach. But, but along came my learnings, which was, oh, you know, hey, it isn't just bread they need. They need fruits and vegetables. They need nutrients. And that obesity is the face of hunger in, in America for many of the, you know, food insecure. So that was the first thing, because then the problem is, how do you get nutritious food at prices that people can afford? Because we all know, due to the farm bill and everything else, that you know nutrients are expensive, and because you know high fructose corn syrup and everything else, it just calories are cheap. So that was one big challenge. The other one was that when you get down into the inner city, you start talking. We did with focus groups and neighborhood meetings and et cetera. You realize nobody has any time, and that as you move down the economic rung, they have less time, not more time. So daily table was designed around creating a kitchen and uh, that is now commissary because it's serving more than one store. Well, we will prepare fresh every day, you know, good, clean, nutritious meals, grab and go, along with cooked proteins, you know, soups, salads, smoothies, sandwiches, all of which are economically agnostic or quite frankly priced below the fast food options in the neighborhood and the other calorically cheap stuff. So the people could, for the first time in that community, have the ability to come in Get a meal that within three to five minutes they could have warm and 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 in front of their family it would taste good, be nutritious, and economically move them forward. So daily table was designed around how do we bring this uh, this issue of food justice in the sense that everybody should have a right in America to be able to feed their family what will provide healthy outcomes for them, and it's a crime that we are at the one hand throwing away or not using a third of what we grow in America, because food's a precious resource. And so Daily Table does use some recovered food. We go out to the produce markets and the growers and the farmers and manufacturers, and we'll take short code product, we'll take overstock, we'll take you know a pallet of, of avocados that are maybe getting a little soft, not ready for guacamole yet, but uh, they're not rock hard. If you're a grocer, you want a rock hard avocado. It comes in a little soft, You'll reject it or you'll tell someone, I, you know, I'm not paying for that. So we'll, we'll go get that stuff donated to us. We'll add that in. We'll then uh, offer that to the community as product that we sell 
as you know, probably in the 50 to 60% of what you'd find elsewhere. We have everything from, you know, fresh lettuce that it's like 99 cents for a, a package of locally grown mass in greenhouse lettuce that's the freshest lettuce you're going to get here in Massachusetts. We sell for 99 cents a package. So just as an example, uh, so Daily Table is designed primarily around tackling this issue of making certain that food, which is the cheapest form of healthcare, is good nutrition, that food becomes the basis and the foundation of a family's uh, ability to provide a healthy outcome for their life. I love the notion that food is the cheapest form of healthcare. Naftali, jump in here. You you teach food justice issues now, is that correct? Yeah, but I wanted to I wanted to go back to something the dog said a, a little while ago. Uh, you said the uh, you didn't know what you were doing, and it's actually really refreshing to hear a really experienced entrepreneur say that and and say you know like uh, how naive it was to think I'm gonna pick up bread and and solve these these issues. Oftentimes, a lot of the issues, uh, some of the issues that in our communities, that we come up with people from outside thinking that they're gonna you know they're gonna design this thing and problem solve without really understanding how complex the system is and. Quite honestly, how the system is built for profit, not for people. Uh, so, we, if we start from from that from that baseline, it's a we we can do work, but at some point we have to humble ourselves to like that level of understanding the the real issues. Um, one of the uh, one of the one of the I actually today I, I I took the bus here. I've been I've been taking the bus for over a year. And biking all over the city of Holyoke because there's no way that I can understand uh, the lack of food access and uh, a lot of the a lot of the neighborhoods in in South Holyoke specifically are 1.2 miles away from the nearest grocery store and we can say oh that's not a lot that's not a long distance but it's a really really long distance if you don't have a car. Right. If public trans transportation doesn't work, which in Massachusetts is very challenging, and and also if you have a life, you have a family, you have a job, so those are, those 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 issues really compile to uh, against people eating healthy on top of ever on top of ever, everything else. So one of the one of the things that I've been uh, that I've been exploring in the in the last couple of years. With a my we we uh, we have a food court member Isis Feliciano who is from the community from the city of Holyoke. We've been exploring uh, teaching youngsters how to cook uh, how to cook meals. It would be a stretch for me to tell you how to eat healthy. We cook with what we have, and uh, because that's a, that's a reality of uh, of everyone that lives in the in the community that is considered a food desert or a food swamp. And we stopped saying food de food desert a while ago because there there is food in the desert, and I can take you all to to a, to Apache territory, and I know really amazing foragers that are uh, foraging a lot of really great food. food. So uh, the point being is that we have to work with what people have. It's, it would be easy, relatively easy, to apply for a grant and have you know really good food for a while, but that's not that's that is not the reality of a everyday life for people in the community. Yeah. And where where are you teaching these young kids? We were we had been teaching at a, we had been teaching at one of the local high schools. It's called Palo Ferry Social Justice High School. 
and we did that for a couple of years. This year, actually, one of the things that I, one of the projects that I wanna I wanna launch has is on that intersection of having no time and having a food waste, but also economic justice. One of the things that our kids are don't have in the summer or or year round is jobs. So we're trying to develop a program in which we glean because you know Western Massachusetts has a lot of food that goes to waste. Uh, we glean with the teenagers. We bring bring them back to the kitchen. They learn uh, some cooking skills as well as uh, as well as some some food justice, big f- food systems uh, language, and really start t- thinking critically about uh, food in general and what the result should be and would be uh, food that is healthy for them, for their families, and for the community. But also, teenagers should get paid at least minimum wage for their time. Naftali, uh, you were saying uh, that it was refreshing that Doug, you know, as an entrepreneur, was able to say, you know, we at first we didn't know what we were doing. One of the other things that I've uh, found both refreshing and inspiring, Doug, about your work is that uh, you've learned a lot of lessons the hard way in terms of making daily table work, but you've been kind of undeterred. You know, you've taken those and you've you've been very resilient. You've built them. You've ad- you've done, I think, what successful entrepreneurs do, which is constantly adapt to what the market is telling you as opposed to just, you know, kind of rail, rail against it or go into a defensive crouch and, and defend what you were trying to do. Talk a little bit about some of the lessons that uh, you've learned. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, um, well, first, as I said, was the fact that people don't have time. Second is I really love what Natalia's saying about education. So we put in a teaching kitchen. It's free of charge to the community. We do two to three classes a week, and we do kids after school programs and adults. So it wasn't just we wanted to give them fish, we wanted also how to teach them how to fish, so to say. So I think that was an integrated part. And I also loved what uh, what you had to say regarding the fact this is a system. There's no silver bullet you can shoot and take care of this problem. So one of the challenges for us is, as you go into a community and you start to tackle a problem, like a problem of, of hunger, or, or I'll just call it nutritional access, it intersects with almost every other problem out there on the system. It intersects with education, intersects with poverty, you know, with economic, and intersects with culture and, you know, access. It's So one of the things that we've learned, we've had a lot of learnings, we've learned that a store, a retail store, actually helps anchor a community so that when people get off the bus at 6.30 at night, so for our customers, 70% of them don't have a car. And most of them have jobs, and they'll work two or three jobs. So, for instance, we create 61 jobs at Daily Table currently. And of those, that uh, the majority of which are full-time, I would say most of them work a second or third job. Really? And the reason for it is that even though we pay above prevailing wage, you may have seen the report in the Boston Globe that a living wage in the city of Boston is $31 an hour. That's a Globe reported. Well, there's not a grocer I know of, anyone in the city of Boston that is paying their line staff, you know, people on cashiers and stuff, $31 an hour in general. And uh, so- So people have to work. They have to work. Job. So what we have to do is we have to we have to be uh, cognizant of the fact that no one has any time. So when they get off that bus at 6.30, that they've got to be able to come in, find what they want, get out. The other one that's really critical that we discovered early on in, in formulating this is this issue of dignity. And dignity is not something that's, that's spoken of frequently in this. But the other side of food justice is individual dignity and sense of a sense of agency that my health, I can take back into my control in my hands. And so one of the things that's really core to us at Daily Table is to create an environment 
where they come and interact with us. And people often ask, well, why do you sell the product? I mean, you go out and you collect some food. We also buy a lot of food. Why don't you give it away? Well, first of all, 80% of what we offer, we had to buy. So that wouldn't make much sense. But there's a more fundamental reason behind it, which is that by flipping the model so that we have to earn their patronage every day, we've got to basically create a market where they come in. And even if they are paying deep discounts and they can afford the product, because they choose it, they're psychologically involved in it. They'll use it more than if I just gave them a box or a bag. They also have the pride of going home and knowing that I provided this food for my family on the table. You know, my work went to provide this food. And that the other pride, and they've shared this with us, is that I can finally provide the foods that I know I should be providing. You know, people, no matter what your economic status is, they understand that just sugary drinks and these things aren't going to be helping. The problem is that we as a society haven't done a lot to give them the true choice, a true choice of healthier outcomes or junk food. And so Daily Table's mission and one of our, our continued pivots and learnings is how do we assist them in that feeling of a dignified shopping experience where they get to have agency and we provide the foods they need uh, to have healthier outcomes. And, and you use um, healthy foods as a screen for what the products are in the store, right? So you're, I mean, yeah, if, it, it if hurts you're us in, economically. You're in the daily table and you're going to buy something, it's going to be healthy for you. Yeah, the, the challenge is, is, is Billy and you and I have talked about this, is, you know, we, we put together before we opened here in Boston, you got this world class group of med ed sort of. So we put together dietitians from Harvard School of Public Health and Children's Hospital and Boston Public, uh, you know, uh, Health Commission, et cetera. Tufts. There's like 10 or 12 of them, Children's Health, Health Watch. And we said, look, we're not experts on nutrition in the sense of how much sugar, how much sodium should be in a product that is going to have a healthy outcome for a kid, isn't going to lead to further obesity or lead down a path towards diabetes. How much can, so we want it to be tasty. So don't just give me low sugar, low sodium in the sense of you're on a restricted diet. Give me what would be a healthy outcome. And so they gave up. They gave us five pages of guidelines on everything we create. And for almost three years now, we have voluntarily adhered to those. And we create meals that have to be tasty because if they're not tasty, people aren't coming back. They've got to be you know, fresh and delicious. But it limits us economically. It hurts us because we don't carry soda. We don't carry candy and cookies and, you know, the the things that economically might be cheap in a grocery store, but aren't doing you any good and going to cost you in your health down the road. So we only carry about 400 items. So we're more a food market. We're certainly not a supermarket. That's sure. for sure. Naftali, I guess when we think about food justice, I feel like that's a broad term that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. How do you think of it? And what do you think is, I mean, Doug, I feel like Doug is working on a very important piece of it, but it's broader than that. There's a set of issues that are broader than that. How, how should we think about what, food justice means and how far we are from really achieving it in this country? Well, uh, I think food justice, well, uh, my work starts from the baseline, the food is a human right. And unfortunately, you know, the U.S. has never signed on to that agreement premise. Uh, it's one of the, probably one of the only nations that has not signed onto that onto that agreement. So my work starts from, from that baseline. Um, is, you're talking about an international agreement that yeah. says food is a human right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the dignity of people is something that probably is the baseline, something that we have to, that we have to start working on, uh, especially in this uh, political climate in which the dignity of people is out the window. It's it's really sad to see, you know, the, to hear conversations in D.C. and to hear conversations of regular people, how uh, misguided the information is in the sense of uh, 
if we start from the premise that food is human right, we should never be talking and uh, dismissing people that need food, especially because, as Doug said before, most people they they need they are food insecure in this country are working, and we're specifically working in the food system a lot, a great portion of that. We're talking about people uh, planting and picking the food, processing people in the restaurant industries, people in the in in uh, in all the food chain. So it's a, it's really a travesty that we have to be having this conversation, especially in this political climate in which we do not take people's dignity into consideration. Another thing that I like to say is uh, not only we have to, in the food justice work, we have to dignify people, but also empower them and take into consideration, into consideration self-determination. What, what are some of the ways that we can empower people? One of the best ways to empower people is to listen to them. What do you need? How can we uh, facilitate you eating better, being healthier? Like, what what are the issues in the community that you're facing? If we're if we if we're never listening, we're really not empowering people. And uh, once people feel empowered and and uh, they self determination is really what's what's gonna make a difference long term. One of the first things that I when I came back to work in Holyoke about three years ago, one of the first lessons that I've learned is was from this elder from the community. And one of the things she told me was very important. She said, a lot of people have come and gone. A lot of nutritionists, a lot of people that think that they know how to fix the food issues in our community. And, they adv- and her advice to me was small steps, small steps that make sense for, the, for people. And she gave me a, a very specific example. I suffer or suffer from heart disease, and at some point I decided that I was gonna stop frying food and I was gonna bake my food instead. Instead of fried chicken, you bake it. And that long term, if you think about it, that has a great a greater impact. You don't have to change the you don't have to change the the diet that much, but it makes a difference in the in the long run. Then you know trying to make people eat kale salad when that's not something that they're used to. It's not culturally appropriate. Yep. Uh, so, Doug, a lot of listening must have been involved when um, before you opened up Daily Table. Oh, yeah. Well, I went to, we had focus groups that were actually professionally run. I probably went to 15 or 20 neighborhood meetings and councils, and uh, I got uh, uh, tremendous amounts of feedback, constantly pivoted, because I think that... Uh, uh, you know, it, as has been pointed out, so so right. I almost charged off with what I thought was a beautiful solution to the wrong problem, but by listening to the community and understanding truly that uh, a couple of things that were really important. One was they already had a better understanding of nutrition than I thought. You know that they, it wasn't like I had to go convince someone you have to eat fruits and vegetables or you know cleaner diet. There's they live in an ocean of information, whether it's from their doctors, through schools with the kids and everything else, the news. I mean, anywhere you go, it's kind of letting them know that. Their challenge, as they expressed to us over and over and over again, was give us a chance, you know, give us a chance to be able to provide for our families and ourselves the foods we should be eating. And many of us will. Not everybody, because not everybody at any economic class just eats beautiful food. That So that, that was one listening. The other one was around jobs. I still remember there was a, there was a meeting at Common Square, uh, the Neighborhood Association. There was about 150 people in the room. And I'm talking about Daily Table, what we're going to be doing. And, you know, everything's going along pretty well. They like it. They like the concept. You know, it hadn't opened yet, so they didn't know what it was going to look like. There's some concerns about, 
Is it going to look like a second-rate, you know, Salvation Army sort of outlet store? And it's like, no, no, it's going to look like a beautiful food store. One of the guys raised his uh, hand and said, I want to know about jobs. You know, are you going to hire from the community? Mm-hmm. So I'm here, I am in Dorchester, and I go, absolutely. We are going to be preferred providers of, of uh, jobs for Dorchester. And the guy uh, says in colorful language, I can't repeat, you know, I don't give an F about Dorchester. Are you hiring from Codman Square? Okay, so he meant really from and where I had realized are. how personal and how local it was from. They didn't want to know that, are you hiring from Boston? It's like, no, no, my neighborhood here, my community right here needs help. Are you going to be a force for good to provide jobs from the people who live right here in this community that you're serving? And so that, again, was a listening of sensitivity to me around the economics and how critical job uh, development was as compared to volunteerism. Because we were also very big at thinking, we'll go out and we'll go to college and stuff. We'll get a whole army of volunteers to come down and we'll hire a few people. And it became very clear early on that, no, no, our model's got to shift. We've got to be primarily uh, employers hiring from the community with some volunteerism that can, you know, people come and help. And we have a couple of hundred hours a week of volunteerism. But our chief drivers are to hire people, train them, develop them, and hopefully provide them skills and life skill training that allows them to go out and get higher paying jobs. Then you know, we, we don't want Daily Tale to be their last stop. We want to be a training ground that can really provide them uh, a healthy, safe environment and tools that allows them to go get themselves a much better paying job. Well, help, help me solve this dilemma that I'm having as I'm listening to this conversation. When I listen to you, Doug, uh, and the values that you bring to Daily Table, I feel like we're getting closer to food justice. And Naftali, when you talk about kind of the current political climate, um, and I think you mean under the Trump administration, it feels like we're getting farther from any kind of justice, including food justice. How do you think about that? I, I feel like in some cases we're on the right path, but politically in your community, Naftali, how, how are, where do people feel like we are on that journey? Well, I'm going to speak to you from uh, two different communities that, are, that I represent. Yes, specifically under, under, under this administration, um, the rhetoric and the, uh, that is going on, one of the latest one, probably everyone knows this, was the boxes. Yes, and we have to the, remember the so-called American harvest boxes. Exactly, and we have to remember the uh, my brothers and sisters in reservations have been receiving these boxes for decades. So this is nothing new. This this just a uh, uh, this is uh, this has is been this happening. Like Bureau of Indian Affairs, yeah, kind of. Yeah, uh, this has distribution. been distribution. This has been happening, and uh, and I assure you that what comes in the boxes is not healthy. One of the main reasons in, in the Native American food movement, we talk a lot about uh, about fried bread and other and other foods, but if what you have is lard, flour, salt, sugar, you're gonna make something with it, and 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 what you make. It's gonna it's gonna become part of your comfort zone, and talking about uh, talking about uh, people's dignity that becomes part of your emotional attachment to food, right? So that's what you're gonna you're gonna eat. So if we were talking about harvest boxes, I assure you that it's very hard to make harvest boxes that are gonna travel thousands of miles and are gonna be healthy. And the good news is that's probably not gonna happen politically. There's almost no support for it. But I think it was a play to their, you know, ideological mm-hmm. base. So that's that's one thing. And in the, in the, in the I co-founded last year the I Collective. Shout out to my to my fellow members. 
And in Native American communities, there is a big, big push for uh, self-determination, food sovereignty at many in many different ways. And we're talking about some of our members teaching young kids how to harvest in the desert, literally how to harvest food in the desert like their ancestors did, to fighting political and economic battles in D.C., to teaching food justice, to cooking in restaurants, to fighting against cultural appropriation, and it's all connected. All of this is all of this is connected. So there's in the specifically in the indigenous and Native American food movement, there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful examples of people growing more food, because that's also a very important point. If you don't grow your own food, if you don't know how to grow food, there is no way that you're ever gonna achieve food sovereignty. And in communities like like Holyoke, there's a, there's also a big movement to start understanding why there is no, why is the, why is there no more than two full grocery stores in a in a city of forty thousand people. So how do we, and there's a, there's a push to to change that. Whose work in Naftali in the native uh, in, in the Native American community should we be paying attention to? Is there an organization that's doing first rate work that we should know more about than we do? There's a, at what level? I mean, I just came back from D.C. Uh, last week from working with the Good Food for All uh, Coalition. And there's, an, there's a tribe in Minnesota, and they have an organization called Seeds of, Seeds of Native Health, I believe. Seeds of Native Health. Okay. And they, they design, they ask lawyers to, to write a book on the, the specifically Native American recommendations for uh, the farm bill. And it's a beautiful book that like describes every single issue that our communities face. So that's at the advocacy level. Now at the at the local level, I mean there's many many people, many organizations doing uh, growing food, uh, talking working with kids. Excellent. Uh, Doug, cl- closer to food justice, farther from food justice. Um, I mean, it's a battle that you've kind of fought inch by inch. Well, I uh <clears throat> I guess uh, uh the way I look at it is um that you're kind of at sea. You're a sailor, and right now we got some headwinds. You know, it doesn't deter us from what we're doing, but it's a, there's a headwind. There's a there's a there's a feeling that uh, and 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 I'll go back to the fact that in my opinion, because the average American has no idea what's really going on when it comes to uh, food insecurity. So one of the challenges that we face in America, frankly, when I was a kid, I used to see care packages. It would go over to, well, first India, then China, right? And then, you know, by Africa and stuff. You'd see these emaciated or done, you know, save the children sort of work. You'd see these, you know, kids that were truly calorically starved and were starving. And when you think of hunger in America and you say that one in seven or one in eight now uh, are, are, quote, hungry or food insecure, when you look around the population and go, I don't see one in seven people like starving and skinny and stuff. So one of the challenges we face is if obesity is a face of hunger is the average American, when they look at an obese person's first reaction is, what's going on over there? Don't they have any self-control? Why don't they, you know, the last thing I need to do is give them help with more food. And I think it's a real misread and a misunderstanding of, the, of what's on the ground, the reality. And the administration has, well, I think it's fair to say that to date, they've shown no empathy, no understanding, no willingness to listen no willingness to compromise, no willing to look at and go out and deal with the organizations that, forget Daily Table, we've been around for a few years. The organizations, uh, and Billy, you know about this, uh, that have been around for decades that have been fighting this good fight. There's so much learning that needs to be done. And then adjusting, and what I will say about food justice is that it starts with a commitment that there is such a thing. And the problem is that we don't have a... A universal understanding in Congress 
that there even should be such a thing. And I do think that this is one of the fundamental gaps is it should start with the idea that food's a precious resource. Every individual should have a right to have a healthy life, which starts with a nutritious foundation. You can't have someone tell them to go have a healthy life, to go be productive in our society, and and give them a, a diet that is going to end up with a high percentage of them becoming diabetic by the time they're adults or being hypertense, you know, heart disease and obesity. I feel like I'm both discouraged by the current administration's hard-heartedness towards this situation and quite frankly, lack of empathy and, and understanding. But I'm also encouraged by the millennials and Gen Z's passion around, the growing passion around uh, wasted food, around food justice and, and hunger. I do think that that we have a collision that I think I will side with the millennials and the younger population. They're our future. I think they're going to win. And I think that the old fogies in Congress have got to figure out this is the way it's going. We got to change the minds in America around the relationship to good food that we have with our citizens. If if you're the average American and you don't um, live and work in the food industry as as both of you have, and if you're not necessarily political, how can you make a difference? What kind of individual steps and choices can an average American make to support uh, and move the nation towards food justice? Food is political. Everyone has sat at a table where someone had a disagreement about how to cook this or how to cook that. So food is <laughs> <Right>. political. Uh, <laughs> following up with Doug was saying, understanding that food touches every single thing. Uh, there's an organization that I belong to called Hill Food Alliance, Health, Environment, Agriculture, and Labor. There is something around those four topics, those four basics that you that everyone I hope cares about. Yeah. So health, environment, agriculture, labor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that the even if you're not political, I hope you care about the environment. I hope you care about your health. I hope you care about uh, agriculture in this country and how it contributes to everything and labor. You, I hope you care about people. So there is something for everyone to care about. We just have to find it, and we just have to. Uh, we just have to. Um, as opposed to this administration, I feel that we have to reach out at a personal level, oftentimes, and 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 create connections across uh, across the divides they have been they have been uh, established by this system. Uh, we need to we need to have we need to create and, and have more a uh, uh, more connections across across people of all colors across across all movements. Yeah, and I I I jump in on that, and uh, which I really like what's been said. I think that I would add to that to some degree that we have to understand that. For many Americans, they look at this and go, this really isn't my problem. I mean, hey, poverty has been around forever. It will be. What can I do? It's kind of like, you know, global warming. It's so big. What can I do? I, I, I push back on that and say that, first of all, it'll affect all of us. So you have to realize this is a challenge and a problem that will affect all of us. Inequality on food is just as bad as inequality on income, It's going, if not worse. And it's going to affect all of us. So that's one. Second is what you can do about it, of course, is one, raise your own educational awareness. Just internet, just just go on Google stuff, start to read about it, become educated, start to learn about what is this issue, and then start looking at the many organizations of which there are, you know, dozens and not hundreds around the country doing innovative things, 
that are approaching things uh, that are powerful and look at ones that resonate with you that you want to give some support to. Because most of these organizations like Daily Table are nonprofit and they depend upon, you know, uh, some charitable support. So I think that individuals can help that. The final point was don't be silent at the ballot box. Look for and hold the politicians starting even at local levels, your congressmen at state, your governors, your mayors, et cetera. Hold them accountable to an issue that, uh, quite frankly, too often goes silent and there's no conversation yep. in America about. Yeah. Well, you know, we live at a time where there's so much focus politically on the federal government and President Trump and the administration and dominates the news coverage. Uh, for the last seven or eight years at Share of Strength, we've worked mostly with governors. Uh, governors and mayors and school superintendents are where these programs, often at least our federal nutrition programs, where they get executed. And it turns out that governors are not as political. I mean, they're, of course, political. They're Democrats or Republicans. They run for office. But uh, they don't feel like they need to be in lockstep with their party, and they can make decisions that really impact the people who live in their state. So I, I feel that, you know, particularly because of what's going on right now at the national level, every election is important for the future of the country. It could be for president, but it could be for mayor, it could be for city council, it could be for school board. Uh, every election and every vote counts. So I totally agree with what you're saying, Doug, in terms of like, you know, get connected to what's going on in your community uh, and and show up at the ballot box. It's, it's never been more important. Um, let's, uh, as we start to wrap up, t tell me a, a little bit about what is uh, next for each of you. Where are you taking your work. And Doug, I know that there's a second Daily Table store now. Potentially, I guess if the economics are right, there could be a third. But I think the, you know, I'm assuming that your economics improve as you grow. And also say, just is, is there a, a website, dailytable.org, that people can go and learn more? Is that a place where people can donate yep. to support your work? Yeah, absolutely. Dailytable.org. We also have Facebook, but uh, websites by the easiest one, uh, portal. And, you know, our intent and our goal here was to create a model that could be both economically sustainable by having units that try to break even. And I will say our retail stores, you know, we, we, we have retail stores that we believe are cash flow positive. And then we have a kitchen commissary and overhead, which, of course, are, are drains because we're creating great tasting meals using good, fresh product. And we're pricing them at, you know, basically less nutritious food prices. So we are looking for a third store in Boston. We've had numerous mayors, uh, just the cities of, 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 in Massachusetts, but also uh, New York and Chicago, Los Angeles, Baton Rouge, et cetera, they've reached out and said, what do we, what's it take to get a daily table down here? We want to have this supplement. Because one of the things we do, by the way, we're members of the Greater Boston Food Bank. We're also registered suppliers to them et cetera, that we have a great relationship with them and many of the other organizations, Boston Area Gleaners, we, we work with Food for Free. These are great organizations uh, because altogether we create a, a safety net and a, and a web. And one of the things that Daily Table does that uh, we have found is by working with other agencies, even if you're a food bank, soup kitchen, food pantry, you can't provide 100% of the needs of a community, no matter who you are. Daily Table provides that safety net in between distributions that people can go and get good food so they don't have to you know, step back into bad habits. 
So I think that our goal is, is to, one, prove out this model to get the economic viability. We cover about 70% of our expenses right now with our own income. We hope that with a third store, we'll get very close to break even. And so, you know, we do count on philanthropic dollars to help us get there. But when we get there, we think we will have achieved something that, you know, no one else has achieved, which is, and the important thing about that is our decisions at store level are not economic ones in the sense we don't talk about margin. We don't talk about this. We talk about what's the right price for the community to have someone be able to bring this into their diet. So these are mission-related and decisions. And then our job is to see can, what can we do to get the expenses aligned to that. And that's a harder part from a community standpoint. You know, it's been a huge success. It's been great. The economic part is, of course, a challenge because we're trying to bend a cost curve that's pretty hard. Well, Daily Table, I think, needs to exist everywhere. So I hope, and we've got a lot of listeners in Massachusetts, but we've got more, a lot more outside of the state. So I hope that uh, philanthropist policymakers, philanthropist policymakers and others, uh, and foundation leaders will take a look at what you're doing and think about how they can support it. Uh, Naftali, what, what uh, is next in terms of your work? Uh, two things um, that two things this year that I'm very excited about. One is uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the work of Soul Fire Farm. Uh, so, so Soul Fire Farm a couple of years ago convened a group of Northeast uh, leaders in food and agriculture, people uh, mostly people of color in food and agriculture. And two things that we did they happened this last winter. We're almost at the end of the winter. I hope we put out a reparations map for all the farmers, uh, all the young black and brown Latino, Latinx uh, farmers to get funded. The next step, we have a meeting coming up in which we are going to uh, explore the possibilities and, and eventually form our own uh, land trust, black, uh, indigenous, Latinx land trust, because we know that we cannot uh, be food sovereign without owning our own land. So, having the land so that's i'm very excited about that if, if people want to check that work go to soul fire farm farms website facebook there's a lot of information there on how to support the, uh, i'm, I'm going to continue to this year uh, grow the i collective indigenous collective and and as i said before there's a network of chefs and uh, seed keepers knowledge keepers um, all activists crew that, uh, that are working in their own communities, and hopefully we can start uh, having a, a national presence. Uh, the third thing that I'm excited about is I'm gonna I'm gonna lobby the daily table to come to Holyoke. So yes, that's a great idea. That's <laughs> a really you. that's a really great idea. <laughs> we look forward to that. Well, thank you both for being here, uh, Naftali Duran. Uh, thanks not just for the work you're doing, but for um, all the ways in which you give. Uh, voice to those whose voices are not heard uh, loudly and clearly enough, uh, particularly those who are most vulnerable uh, in our society. It's really a, a treat to have you on Ad Passion and Stir. So thank you. Thank you. And uh, Doug Rao, um, continued success. Uh, as I s said earlier, I've been in the store, the Daily Table. It's really a, it's a remarkable experience. I know that you've got uh, customers and, and guests and clients who are responding enthusiastically. Uh, to both stores now, and I uh, hope there's a third uh, and then a fourth and a fifth, uh, including in Holyoke. Thanks for being with us. It's been great. Thank you. And I'm Billy Shore. This is Ad Passion and Stir.